0: We're kind of in the in the pre-Google ads on top of the search engine results period, right? If you guys remember, there used to be a period where you could type in whatever you wanted to do a search engine, yeah. on that, whether that was AltaVista or HotBot or whatever, and there would be no ads. Right. And the search engines were just trying to do the very, very best to give you the results. And I, th- I think that's kind of the phase that we're in right now, yep. where the the responses have not been commercialized in any way. And they're inevitably going to be commercialized in some way. And And so the question becomes, like, how are they going to be commercialized?
1: Hey, everyone, and happy holidays. Welcome back to another episode of Unsolicited Feedback. Uh, My name is Brian. I'm founder and CEO of Reforge and the host of the podcast. Today, I'm joined by two amazing folks, my co-host, Fareed Masavat, and our guest, Andrew Chen, who's a general partner at Andreessen Horowitz. This is a two-part episode. And in the first part, Fareed, Andrew, and I go through a bunch of fun, quick-fire predictions around 2024. Are we going to see more or less IPOs, more or less M&A? more or less product managers, and why. And in part two of this episode, we talk a little bit about whether or not we're going to see a new big emerging growth channel and how startups should play it as well as dive deep on what Andrew's learning about new growth techniques that are emerging in the gaming scene. Two quick things. First, join me on unsolicitedfeedback.co. Sign up for the email list and you'll get a bunch of exclusive goodies. And second, you can join me on LinkedIn in the discussion about this episode. Just search me out on LinkedIn. I'll post a thread about it, jump into the comments, and we'll answer questions along the way. Other than that, let's jump into the episode. What's the conversation at Andreessen about, you know, like heading into 2024?
0: A lot of the firm is focused on AI stuff right now. We also have a web three and we also have, you know, so different verticals have different dynamics because we have a venture team, I co-lead the games fund. There's a web three team, there's a bio team, there's late stage, there's a bunch of stuff going on, but I would say generally there's a lot of discussion about AI, I think the reason for that is because you just see some really, really explosive growth from those products. And it's funny because it's like early internet, where just by the product, like working at all, it, it like, you know, it, it, it quote it has the right. it works feature. You know, it's like, <laughs> like that, that in itself is so amazing that you can name your product, anything, including just a random set of acronyms. Like if you want, you can have zero growth strategy. You can have products that, that send zero notifications. And it'll attract millions of advertisers, right? right? So I think, it, I think just generally, it, it's a very fertile moment right now. That's just at the beginning of that S curve where like design and UX differentiation and all that stuff is just like not yet a thing versus, you know, as, as, as time passes, it'll become more and more, you know, the app slayer and how it looks and it'll be more segmented and, you mm. know, all, all, all that I think will, will go.
2: That's an interesting perspective that like, because it's also new, even something in its rawest form can be it can grow and be used, and people are excited to do it. Whereas, like on mobile apps, that was true in the earliest days, but as we got closer, like further and further down the maturity cycle, you know, I just saw an article this morning that's like the era of the MVP is over, which is like, oh, you have to build something really full featured, really well designed, et cetera, to, to stand out. But maybe that's not as true in AI adjacent markets because. The fact that it works at all is exciting enough for people to kick the tires and try it out. There was an analysis of just quantitatively in the app
0: store every year since t- 2009 or when, whenever the, the app store first was, was released, basically how much volatility there was in the top right. 100 and how solidified was it? <clears throat> and what you see is that mm. there's a lot of movement in the early years because it's like flashlight apps, fart <laughs> apps, like... You know, yeah, just like all sorts of Flappy stuff. Bird. <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, Flappy Bird. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Flappy Bird, funny enough, was so like a yeah. later, later entrant almost. And so so you had all this like turnover in the early years. I think there was a point where everyone was, you know, they would install five new apps a week because you were like, Oh, what's out there? What's out there? And you were kind of hungry for new functionality. And then of course that eventually settled down. And then now it's it's pretty ossified, you know, what it is. And so Freed, yeah, I, I think it's interesting to to think about it as like That the mvp strategy is maybe a particular strategy that works really really well in you know the early part of the s curve and then in later years you end up doing kind of big launches highly branded big emphasis on design etc because you know the the product category has already been established so the fact that it works at all is not actually impressive it has to be that much better right And, and famously apple being the company that often doesn't invent new things they just perfect categories Kind of in that tail end of the the S curve where it's like, oh, you know, great AirPods. Like, yeah, they didn't invent the category of wireless headphones, but man, they're they're
1: amazing. Same with the smartphone. Same with many of the things that they've done. But part of that early volatility, right? Like a lot of those that kind of popped into the top 100 didn't become sustainable apps and stuff. So do you do you feel like you ruin your shot at sustainable growth if you take that strategy right now? If you like take advantage of novelty effect you just burn through users basically i mean i think that's the million dollar
0: question right which is are the ai experiences that are high growth and high churn at the moment that they where maybe the novelty starts to come off a little bit right i mean i think we already see this in all the the various diffusion you know model kind of image generation products where i mean if you look at the current state of the art versus even 12 months ago There's still definitely a step change, but the time before that is even more so. And then of course, being able to do it at all, like that's an infinitely amazing upgrade. Right. But I think, I think we, we might start seeing the kind of like iPhone one to three being a bigger jump than the iPhone, you know, 11 to 13 jump where like now, every time I buy my iPhone, I, I, I can kind of tell the differences a little bit less yeah. on what it is. And so being able to do it at all is amazing. Now we're getting smaller and smaller improvements potentially. And then is the novelty going to come off? If the novelty comes off, then the acquisition channel will get cut. Or the other version is that it gets commoditized because there's a number of these closed source AI models, and there's a whole set of open source ones that are changing them. Mistral on the LLM side, Stable Diffusion and Chasing Mid Journey. And I imagine the same will happen in, in video and 3D and some of the other areas that people are focused on. And so I think there's a very good question where maybe the characteristics become very different. Maybe, for example, for LLMs, it's going to be way more important not just to give a pretty good answer, but for the model to be really small and to be able to run locally. On your phone or on your computer and so those are might be very different competitive dynamics mm. but you know going back to the growth question if that top of funnel traffic falls off then one argument would be the folks that are high churn that haven't figured out the product there's going to be a moment there where a new kind of a second generation might emerge you, the other argument would be well the that first generation got all the money they got all the VC <laughs> money and so they'll have the money to like figure out all the details but like, yeah, I mean, even in mobile, if you guys all remember, there was a generation of the Flipboards and the Foursquares and some of these that didn't work quite as well as the ones that actually followed three or four years later, as Instagram and Uber and you know some of these other ones. And so there is uh, there is definitely an interesting question of like, what generation of these products is is really going to work?
1: Yeah. Hmm. All right. Well, maybe that's a good transition. Uh, we thought something fun to do today would be you know, since we're ending the year on this heading into 2024, we do a quick fire set of predictions around the table. And so we have a, a little bit of a more or less kind of questions. And so I'll ask them and then we can go around and kind of give our prediction and maybe a quick thought on the reason why we selected that. Let's start with more or less IPOs in 2024 than 2023. <laughs> Three. What do you? Th- we'll start with you for it. Is it
2: possible for there to be fewer in 2024 <laughs> than there were in 2023? That's, why, that's yeah. why I thought it was easy.
1: Um, that's that's why I think it's easy. I,
2: yeah. So no, we, we had we had we had what we had Instacart, we had Clavio, we had there was there 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 was a third one. There right? were three yeah. all kind of at the same time, right? What was the third one? I can't remember. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But not that many, oh, at least in core tech, yeah. right? I'll say I think it'll be more. I think things will open up a little bit. I think because fundraising at the later stages is going to change a little bit i hope we are opening the door to companies with less than a billion dollars in revenue going public next year yeah. i don't know if that'll that will actually sense. happen but I, it can't be less than 2023 yeah andrew? andrew i was just looking up the the company
0: so uh arm, oh, arm. was the other one. Oh, Although yeah it doesn't count because it wasn't sort, sort of really like a spin back, back out, start out right yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, so not quite the same. I think what we've been seeing is that there's at least more stability and positivity about the public markets coming up, and uh, obviously there, there there were just the three, and really maybe just the two. So, <laughs> so it does that does seem easy to say that the, that there hopefully will be more. I mean, there are a ton of companies sitting on kind of fancy 2021 valuations that are late stage. They're burning through cash. They've kind of had their medicine, and as a result of that, they've cut burn. They're going to be in a better spot, and so I, I think we may see quite a few of those. If there's one or two that go well, you know, adventurous folks that go out and it it does well, then I think we may see a wave of. And
2: it's worth noting. My understanding is, and this may not be always true, but most of the time, like preferences don't survive IPOs. So like. For some of these companies with large preference overhangs, it might actually be the best way to raise money is to be public, right? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And sometimes these things they have like a little more structure on them in, in the cleanup rounds as they go through. And famously Square and some of the companies that ipo 10 years ago, they kind of went through this period where they, everyone was worried and you know asking questions about what their IPOs were going to be like. And obviously. Ultimately, they ended up being really yeah. great companies. So e- even though there's quite a few questions about this upcoming market, I think you have to bet on, on, on a lot of these yeah. tech companies enduring over. over I'll
2: life. just say one thing I hope to see is I hope to see a world where we see a lot more squares, meaning the 10, 50 X growth can still happen post IPO for tech companies versus all of it being that IPOs are sort of the end of the line. For a lot of these companies like sort of once the business is fully fully realized i'd like to see a world where the markets open back up where you can go out at 100 million in ar and still 10x from there i think it mm-hmm. builds healthier organizations too instead of chasing as you're chasing compounding growth over time
1: yeah i'm also on more just because there are so few in 2023 <laughs> it's going to be hard to, to, to miss but let's move to a slightly harder one more or less mna andrew we'll start with you I think there will be a lot more and I, th- I think the reason
0: for that is because everyone that's kind of sitting on venture portfolios from 2021 kind of can see uh, what's happened in the last couple of years which was as soon as the economy slowed down and interest rates went up every single company if they were going to react in time for it what they did was a couple things kind of in a row right so one was doing a riff often severely but 25 to 30 percent was was pretty common A lot of that burn actually was often cut on kind of, you know, user acquisition, low ROI or unaccountable ROI kind of user acquisition, and also the teams that would often support that, right? You had a lot of companies also raising, if they were lucky, almost flat rounds. So you had folks in the last two years where if the business was actually pretty good, they would just raise flat to their fancy 2021 round. So so you had that, you know, happening. But all of these, you know, what they really serve is they sort of serve the ability for, these startups that are in the series B kind of range to lengthen their runway from being 18 or 20 months or something like that out to 3 years. And then I think what you're seeing is okay, now 2024 or 2025 approaches, those companies are going to mostly have to look at it and say okay, like how realistic now is it to raise the next up round, yep. Or, you know, w- what's going to happen. So I think The market is still slow enough that I would expect quite a lot of wind downs, quite a lot of sort of soft landings. And then on the flip side, I think this is maybe a time for some of the larger incumbents to be able to get back some of the high end talent that kind of left all the companies kind of in the last couple of years. And then, you know, for the mega companies, I mean, it is hard to buy late stage startups right now just because of the regulatory environments, et cetera. And so, you know, so so I think it'll be less less of the like big transformative MA, but a lot of small MA. Yeah. That should be happening.
1: Yeah, I agree with that. I'm also going a lot more MA. I think it was Pilot that put out some data a few weeks ago that said sixty percent of startups are gonna have to raise before the end of twenty twenty four. So I think you just have a lot of these categories where You've got a lot of companies sitting in the middle of like single digit million revenue up to 20 million revenue that might be kind of close to break even, but not enough cash to take a big bet or they don't have the growth to raise. And so I think it's just going to force some form of consolidation in a lot of yeah. these categories, especially because there was just so many folks got funded in those couple years. It just, you know, there's a lot of fragmentation in a lot of these categories that will end up coming together.
0: Yeah. And Brian, to your point on the growth rate. A couple of years ago, maybe people wanted to see 3 to 5x annual growth, but also were willing to accept a big burn, like a seven-figure monthly burn rate associated with that. You know, We now cut everything down across the industry generally on burn rate to be as as low as possible. But what that means is often the growth rates that I'm seeing are more like 2 to 3x annually. And there's quite a few companies that are 2x or lower, right? And so those are the companies that are going to have a tough time raising because what they'd like to do is to say, oh, we can grow really fast if we're allowed to burn, but they also don't have the data points to support it.
1: I also wonder if there's going to be just a quick scramble for AI talent. I wonder if like we're going to get a bunch of fast flame outs of like, the first sure. gen of, of AI companies and then there's just going to be a scramble for, for aqua hires. That was the other thing that just kind of came to mind.
2: I, I think I'm I'm mostly on y'all's side on the really small acquire talent acquisition type side, especially on the AI side. You've seen anybody with any like resume on AI stuff is like, I'm going to start a company. Why would I take a job for a lot of these folks? You know, you see like the Google team being like dispersed across a bunch of different startups or the Facebook AI team, those kinds of things. And maybe there will be some consolidation. I agree with you guys that there will be a lot more sellers. There was no reason if you were in a good situation, growing and fundable when there's a lot of money out there two, three years ago, that you would take a mediocre offer and companies weren't buying because prices were so inflated. My question is whether the buy side of this is actually going to materialize next year. Like, I think there will be a lot of companies that are trying to sell. I just don't know who's going to buy and whether their shareholders, public markets, or even their VCs are going to be okay with large transactions for lots of money to bring in other adjacent products, et cetera. And then as you said, Andrew, on the high end, there's certainly tons of headwinds to any large acquisitions. So really it's like, who's going to buy this middle class of companies, maybe private equity type roll-ups get more common? I don't know. And will founders accept the lower prices that those kinds of people want in order to roll them up? So that's where I don't know. i I think we might be in a little bit of a stalemate, and we might see good companies go out of business because they like can't figure out how
1: to finance, even though they're pretty solid. And I think we'll see more mm-hmm. of that. okay. Let's go a little bit tougher. Big breakthrough in AI, like step function and to qualify this, I guess we'll say at least a like, GPT-3 to 4 type of improvement or are we just going to see incremental gains I don't want to go first and I feel like you should go oh, first damn it. this is the one <laughs> I don't want to go first yeah <laughs> I think we're going to see much more incremental gains in terms of like general model jumps, but we'll see a wider breadth of like capabilities added, which has already started, but I'm skeptical of uh, another step function general model increase in 2024. Th- that's my prediction.
0: Yeah. So the obvious things are across all of the different media types, there will be hu- huge gains, right? And, and in particular right now, it seems like where where the, some of the most exciting things are, are around video and mm. being able to produce what feels like today are like kind of clips, like you're basically talking about two or three seconds idle animations, and then people kind of stitch those together into something that's interesting. But you know, you could imagine that just very, very rapidly getting better and better to the point where you could create something that feels like a compelling 5 minute youtube short or something like that that's based on dialogue and scenes and panning over cities and structures and things like that and and so i think it feels like we're very very close on that but then there's also of course music there's 3d assets there's kind of this whole world of you know maybe we'll talk more about it later but everything that's required to generate a full blown like 3d video game type experience like how, how do we go from a very large text prompt to something that looks like you know GTA 6 right and by the way i think i tweeted this but that's a game that has a budget of like one or two billion dollars um, it's, it's, it's truly you know epic but but it's kind of like the ultimate you know brian going back to your kind of your one of the points you made it's it's ultimately one of kind of the multimodal kind yeah. of things right because if you're doing video then you're doing potentially like dialogue generation you're wanting to have a 3d kind of spatial understanding of what's going on so there's a lot of ways that i could imagine just having more models and more forms of content being created You know, that, by the way, also ties to a lot of the growth stuff kind of within that because the world itself is moving so much towards short form video and kind of video dominating as a consumption pattern. It's like even like all the podcasts are now like videos first, and then they get turned into, you know, audio and text and, you know, everything else, but like TikTok and reels and, you know, all of those. And so I think one thing that's very interesting is like all of these AI models actually are very, very tied in because the output is so visual and so creative. They just make for great, compelling content in streams, and so I think that feedback loop actually is driving. I think a lot of the pickup for some of these. So, so I think that's one part, which is just like more models, more media types, multimodal. Like you know, Brian, I agree with that. The other one is when we actually talk to a ton of the customers and enterprise customers on how they're using a bunch of these products, I would say it's like very experimental yeah. at, at the moment. They're taking individual small parts of their workflow. Yeah. And they're very inconsistently using some of these tools. So if, if you're in 3D asset generation, if you're in that world because you're building, you know, you're one of these gaming companies, what you find is people are using generative AI as part of the concepting stage. And then they'll try it for certain things, but they haven't like really truly moved their workflow over. So I think the other big thing we'll see is just actual tools and products that build on top of all the models that kind of get you there. And then the third is, of course, like I think everyone's experimenting with AI right now. But I think we'll we'll see it more like a feature. The way that we talk about chat and messaging in mobile apps, as an example, right? Where maybe in the early days, adding chat to your app would have been like a big deal. Like you would have been Mm. like, oh, we're like we're gonna be a chat-based, you know, travel agent or something, and you build your whole product as that. Or like you know, even mobile, like we're a mobile-first, you know, something, something, something. And then as things moved on. It sort of became just table stakes. It's like, yeah, of course, every company has a mobile app. Of course, every company has some kind of a chat interface. I think we may see, you know, LLMs get integrated more deeply set to to be able to do that. Now, maybe Brian, your original, original question is just take LLMs or just take diffusion models. Are those going to get much, much better? And that you'll have to ask the researchers, but I I think it's, it's got to be that every year it's getting bigger and better. But it also feels like the wow factor is more incremental. Sometimes GPT 3.5 gives me pretty passable answers to four. And like, you know, if you were to show me things side by side, especially for a short answer, I wouldn't actually be able to tell the difference. Between yeah. Two. Yeah. Parade.
2: I plead ignorance on the true <laughs> scientific breakthrough piece of it. It certainly feels like seeing what we're seeing from other models that they all sort of approximate GPT 4 recently. Like Gemini has a lot of cool mixing and matching of how things go in, but like it seems to be about the same. And so that seems like a signal that we don't know what it's going to take to get, it may not be just more of the same to get to the next level. And so it will take some breakthrough. I would never underestimate the ability of very smart humans to 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 identify new novel ideas to break through, but I don't think it's like obvious that it's gonna happen. So I'll give it like a 20% chance as my prediction. I do agree with Andrew that I think the application layer or deployment side of this, I think has been pretty like the obvious stuff over the past year. And we're gonna see some people do some really novel things that I can't even imagine yet that look like breakthroughs because i think you know nabil mentioned this last week is like people still don't really know what these things can do yet like even even open ai doesn't know exactly what an llm can and can't do and so i think a lot of these tinkerers people like doing prompts etc are going to discover new functionality that looks and feels like a breakthrough even without the core like monotech being there so we'll see what that looks like like right now it's like okay yeah i can do customer service with the chatbot. Like that seems like the obvious first thing, but in the same way that like Uber was not obvious when the mobile app came out with GPS, like I think this is where we're going to see the like, Oh, because I can do a plus B that makes this C that like no one ever even thought of. That's actually like pretty foundational. So I, I hope that next year we'll see the sort of like Uber and Instagrams of this world versus cute, apps (laughs) apps <laughs> sort of layer but yeah not to say that everything's cute apps there's all kinds of great stuff happening there but i think it's like all the pitches look the same right now and i think we'll see some breakthroughs maybe we'll see breakthroughs on drug discovery in like crazy meaningful ways or we'll see breakthroughs on storytelling video creation who knows I think someone's going to come up with some cool way to put speech generation plus input plus Ray-Ban glasses and like turn into something really cool <laughs> that we haven't even thought of yet. Yep. Like a lot okay. of we'll pieces do, are there.
1: Let's do two more quick ones before we transition into our deep dive topic. There's obviously been this kind of narrative or even meme to a certain extent that you want kind of going around about product managers or useless, or I don't know how, how you want to describe it. Uh, <laughs> But, um, okay, so that being said, more or less product managers in 2024. Fareed, go for it. (laughs) I think that the ratio of
2: engineers and designers to PMs is going to increase pretty dramatically over the coming years. I think, like, we've gotten into a world where there was this idea that you needed a PM for every single thing that was going on, like started getting to like three to one at some companies, ratios of engineers to product managers, I think we'll go back to a healthy number of more like 10, 12, 20 in some cases, maybe even more. Because of the leverage that some of these AI tools can create, but also the fact that people are getting back to being much more focused in their engineering hiring and 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 thinking about high leverage, like product minded people and their organizations, et cetera. So that's my guess, and I think you'll see a meaningful growth in very senior i c principal PM type roles for important projects versus what you see now, which is, oh, if you want to do something high impact, you hire four product managers, you give that person that you really like a director title and they run four teams, it'll be like, no, I trust a director level person with a team of five engineers directly to go build some stuff because taste is going to matter and execution is going to matter more than Managing lots of people and personalities, et cetera. Because just overall team sizes are going to be much more flat and much smaller than I think we got into the habit of doing over the years. And so, last thing, the reason I said ratio versus number is I'm not sure if we're going back into a hiring binge next year or not. I suspect that we're not. But if things start to loosen up, money gets easy again teams start doing well and they're profitable and their investors are okay with them burning a million dollars again, we might see the number go up. But I think the ratios will continue to stay the same because every CEO I've talked to has realized that like, oh, a flat org of five teams is way, way, way more efficient than a five deep hierarchy of managers of managers of managers and lots and lots of product
1: people. I agree with the trend, but I'm going to go more PMs because I think, you know, and I've talked to a few people about this recently, which is, I actually think there's more tech workers outside of Silicon Valley tech than there are in Silicon Valley now. All these companies that have been going through digital transformation, some of these big companies in retail, banking, all of that kind of stuff, at least we're, we're kind of seeing at Reforge is like the amount of product managers and kind of other roles in that organization are growing. And it's interesting to see how many companies are still going through that transformation that the whole like software eats the world type of trend. And so I, I think if you were to say the number of PMs within your like traditional Silicon Valley tech core, I'd probably agree kind of same or less. But I think in like the world of those roles, I actually think it we're still on a growth trajectory just because of that type of transformation trend. So
0: let me make the argument that it will be the same. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll, I'll 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 cover I'll cover all the bases. So so my my theory is that the PM title especially for earlier stage like tech companies is kind of like a catch-all mm. title that people have used the same way people like you know in the early early years of of a startup there's only two kind, kinds of co-founders. There's the technical co-founder and there's the business co-founder. You could call the business co-founder like whatever you want. You know they could do whatever functions they want but at the end of the day they're also gonna visit all the like shitty startup offices and tour them and like sign the lease and (laughs) they're also going to deal with like hr stuff and they're also going to do everything else so so my theory is that pm has basically become like tax catch-all for like business things that the engineers and you know designer like doesn't want to deal with And, and and because of that we've seen like a tremendous evolution of the pm title over the last 15 plus years, at least that I've been, mm-hmm. I've been, you know, what was, was in the Bay area where in the early days, it was much more like kind of a project management role. And it was much more in a world of not lean startup. It was the actual like Gantt charts and delivery, you know, schedules and mm-hmm. all of that. And, and often not necessarily the person that was doing the product, like feature kind of picking as part of it. Then I think it evolved, interestingly enough, into a world of like more UX and more kind of like, what's the best product that we can do and became much more about product picking. And then I think in recent years, we saw it become much more about growth stuff, right? I mean, there was a period where you, it really, really felt like you really needed to have a separate growth team and have growth marketers and like this and that. And then I think maybe to the, to the victory of, you know, everyone that, that worked on user growth and monetization and everything from 10 years ago, I think that now if you are PM, you're interviewing for a PM job and you don't understand D30 and Mao and all this other stuff, like you're, you're not going to be, you know, like that's just part of the vernacular now. So part of the interesting question is like, yeah, what happens next? And so I think in the version where it just continues to evolve and the PMs like do all the meetings that a lot of the other teams like don't want to do because like no engineer wants to be stuck doing the PM job, which is like you literally are doing email while running between meetings. 30 minute meetings, like in your office, like slot after slot after slot for eight hours followed by three hours of email. I mean, that's, that's most, that's what most like fang PM jobs actually look like. No, nobody, nobody wants that job. Although maybe free, maybe your argument would be that's because there's yeah. too many PMs. And so they're creating, <laughs> they're creating this war of attrition between all the teams in terms of expectations. And then I think, you know, the other interesting angle that I'm, I'm very curious about is if a lot of kind of this no code movement continues. And no code's even more expressive, and PMs can do more and more and more. I mean, there was a world where it used to be that in order to even build the marketing website for your SaaS company, you needed the engineers to prioritize that and do its own thing. And then now it's like you kind of expect that an agency runs it and it's a CMS, and the marketing team can kind of make their own edits and they might even copy and paste some JavaScript code to like do their own analytics. But, you know, kind of an interesting question to me is like, what if that continues? What if you get to a point where the PMs slash the marketing team can actually build and define the signup funnel? You know, what if they can do everything related to the notification system without, you know, engineers? Like, do you, you get to a point where more
2: of these business roles can actually do more and yeah. more product stuff separate from the engineering teams themselves? I love your example of the marketing website, because you could imagine a future world where a person who is the CMO has like a very small or very light only agency type team, if any at all, and uses these great tools to write really creative copy, set the positioning, et cetera, and actually build the assets. And they don't need like an army of people to do that. And the most important job becomes the creative direction, the analysis of how it drives the business, The pieces of the puzzle that you want your most senior folks to have. And so this is what I mean by the rise of the principle is that if you have a lot more leverage with teams where a single engineer can do 5X what they could three years ago, and I suddenly don't need 20 to deliver a marketing website, but maybe even zero, I can be a CMO that for a reasonable size company can drive and direct and analyze and execute marketing mostly solo, without having to like just give feedback, I can actually do the work. And so I think we'll see some of that in product, I hope, at the earliest stages. You also see a lot of early stage companies pushing a lot more of that product thinking down to engineers, designers, et cetera. The diffusion of the... I always joke like there's always a product manager, whether there's somebody who has the title or not. But the question is whether there'll be a unique title versus someone who's also doing other things. I did my best product work when i was actually also writing code because i could it short circuits a lot of communication that changed over time maybe i can get back to that again
1: (laughs) you know yeah (laughs) there will definitely be more blurring between the pm in design marketing types of roles for sure quick thing though
2: brian i just did a quick linkedin search for product manager bank of america to like just like look at your trend of the growth of product outside of tech it says twenty nine thousand results, which I don't actually believe. But i yeah. <laughs> i went through I went through nine pages of it, which is like something like fifty or sixty results, and all of them are people with actual PM things that look like PM titles at Bank of America. It might be twenty nine thousand. Who knows? So I think that's a really interesting perspective on the market that I have a blind spot to because
1: I'm just like. Thinking about early stage startups (laughs) on. Yeah, we're, you you know, we kind of, yeah, in the bubble. Okay, last one. We'll use this as a transition into the deep dive. Are we going to see a new big growth channel emerge in 2024 or no? And it sounds like maybe we already have, like AI isn't a growth channel, but it's certainly creating a lot of growth, right? So, yeah. Yeah.
0: I've heard a theory that AI companions is itself potentially a growth channel because it becomes something that can, like, we're, we're kind of in the in the pre-Google ads on top of the search engine results period, right? If you guys remember, there used to be a period where you could type in whatever you wanted to do a search engine, yeah. without, whether that was AltaVista or HotBot or whatever, and there would be no ads, right? and there would be no SEO, and you would just get the things, you know, the search engines were just trying to do the very, very best to give you the results. And I, th- I think that's kind of the phase that we're in right now, yes. where the, the responses have not been commercialized in any way. And they're inevitably going to be commercialized in some way. And, and so the question becomes how are they going to be commercialized? And one form is the whole GPTs thing that OpenAI is working on. I think there's going to be a lot of other, you know, we're going to see contextual links that kind of underline. There's going to be long answers followed by kind of sponsored answers appended to the bottom. There's going to be, Visuals that are maybe created or you know sponsored by people, et cetera, et cetera. So I, th- I think one version of this that can happen is you're interacting with a text companion, the same way that before there were like massively multiplayer games like World of Warcraft and you know everything that we're playing now. There was actually like text based multi user dungeons is what they were actually called muds, <laughs> and you would interact with these worlds like primarily through text, and then eventually people made them 2D and then they made them 3D and then onward. So there's a world where it's like we're starting with effectively 2D companions that will talk to us about things and potentially recommend stuff to us that might be commercial. But then we'll get to a point where maybe it's 2D and maybe you know there's worlds where we effectively have like concierges for things. So the same way that like if I'm going to go and uh, buy a new gaming PC, for example, I'll ask my colleague and friend uh, Lester Chen who was previously at YouTube Gaming, now at A16Z, I'll ask him like, hey, what should I get? Maybe I'll have like a buddy basically for like any one of my questions and I'll kind of feel and look like a real person, except half the time it'll be sponsored links as <laughs> part of the part of the recommendations, you know, as as, as part of it. So I, I think that's definitely very interesting. And then the other big growth channel, I, I kind of hit, hit on this already, but I think that video is definitely the the behemoth right now. And I think in particular if you are a product that generates really compelling video as the natural course of using the product and then that's combined with then video increasing substantially then that's going to create an explosive growth trajectory hmm. and so i think you know it's one of the reasons why gaming i think has actually been so big in recent years because you know one thing that i found working in the games industry recently is that the emphasis on trailers? The emphasis on streamers? The emphasis on creators? Like it's that much more interesting because you can get such great visuals out of the product as people play it, as opposed to you know if you're using like a vertical SaaS product, it's it's just not as interesting to like screen share. You, like you you wouldn't watch an hour of people using their new HR software, but <laughs> you, you you would watch somebody you know, play Baldur's Gate hey, for an hour. Like that's, that's with you really cool. That. They, uh, <laughs> yeah, people do watch yeah, videos with people exactly. at work. <laughs> so, so I think that's another interesting thing. I think that's, you know, one of the things that's going to cause the AI for video, and AI for like 3D environments thing really take off is because as you use those products, it's so magical, the content that is outputted that I think that will be extremely shareable and we're going to see a big explosion. And
2: I actually have a company that I work with who has seen an increasing number of people come to them. And when they ask, how did you hear about us? They say, ChatGPT recommended you. They have no idea why this has happened or what training data has led to like, someone types in a like, what are great tools for X? And it like lists them out and they're on that list. I wonder if there are are people getting good at putting stuff in training data to be a recommendation for certain types of queries or something like, who knows, you might see stuff like that starting to happen. So I I find that companion thing that you were mentioning, like interesting. It does feel like the organic days of Google where like you kind of trust the answer because it hasn't been commercialized yet. But yes, I think on the other side, I think we're going to see channels that have been tried and true for a long time like just get crushed by AI content I mean we talked about this on a previous episode I think the value and quality of SEO and SEM is just going to go to down one because the number of queries that people are directing towards gpts instead of to Google search is going to increase but also because the content being put onto the internet, And getting repurposed, repackaged, rewritten, retargeted is just going to make the quality of organic search results on SEO get worse and worse and worse over time, especially for the biggest stuff. So I think, I think it's going to be hard to stand out on SEO. I think 2024 might be the year where like it starts to really come apart at the seams for, for Google and how they manage the SEO situation. And I think that might be true for paid ads too, especially like just the amount of like, stuff that seems kind of ai tested <laughs> that i see in like instagram ads etc it's just like yeah you know well there there's all those
0: fake yeah. rogan ads where you know they're they're deep fakes of him endorsing products oh i've
1: seen they're, that it,
2: if it's really really easy to make creative it's just going to be harder and harder and harder to stand out and differentiate on creative so i think like that's going to be a challenge on that side i mean this just just goes to show like we got to lean in on the stuff that really works word of mouth virality people recommending things to people that's the stuff that's going to stand out because a lot of the things that are system driven are just going to get you know more and more commoditized over the next year exactly i think i think word of mouth is that's
0: obviously always yeah. evergreen and and for the really great products like that is going to be the way that people Ultimately, find them. And so I think it has a lot to also do with what kinds of products are you building, right? I think, mean, you know, going back to the AI discussion, we're at a period right now where it works is the primary thing. I think that actually eventually needs to transition to it works. And by the way, my whole team is using the product and we're sharing editing assets using this prosumer yeah. AI tool or whatever. And it's sticky for the same reasons that. Figma is sticky or Dropbox
1: is sticky, not because the AI has a novelty effect. All right, everybody. That's it for part one of this episode. As a reminder, we'll be dropping part two soon, where Andrew Farid and I talk about whether or not we're going to see a new emerging growth channel in 2024 and what conditions need to be met for startups to play in that that world. Uh, We'll be dropping that soon. But in the meantime, go to unsolicitedfeedback.co, sign up for the email list where we drop some exclusive content, clips, transcripts, as well as a bunch of other goodies. And join me on LinkedIn. Just search My name, as well as a post about this episode to ask questions or join in the discussion. Other than that, everybody have a great holiday and we'll see you in part two.